Hi, everybody. Uh, it's so lovely to be here and to be able to just look out at your gorgeous faces. My name is Fran. Hey, Joe. <laughs> um, and we are um, currently in our series looking at a God-centered community. We're exploring the story of Exodus. That was indeed an advert we have just watched together for a certain soft drink. And all will become clear if you'll just bear with me. So we're going to look today at what it means to be a spiritually healthy community. Back in 1971, when I was a preteen, and some of you weren't even thought about, on a particularly hot day, former American president Ronald Reagan made a speech. As he neared his conclusion, he paused briefly to take a sip of water and notably refreshed upon returning to his microphone, he told his audience this, and I'm not going to attempt the American accent. Now, I certainly have spoken on a number of topics today. However, if you are to remember one thing and only one thing, it should be this. Speeches are nothing. Thirst is everything. Always remember to obey your thirst. Little did Reagan know that his concluding remarks that day would become the inspiration for that hugely successful advert, which actually ran for two entire decades. We know, don't we, that in order to stay physically healthy, we need to drink. Stop drinking and see what happens. As a general rule of thumb, a person needs to drink, um, sorry, a person can only survive without water for three to five days and can go from feeling thirsty on the first day and maybe a bit sluggish to complete organ failure by the third. So I would like you to remember that when we come to our Bible passage. That's why God has wired us in a certain way. He's wired us so that our bodies have a natural inbuilt facility to remind us to drink. We get thirsty. Thirst is an indicator. It tells us there's a need. It tells us we need to act. And when we don't obey our thirst, the consequences can be very serious. It's easy to think, isn't it, in terms of just physical thirst um, and physical health. But the Bible talks about spiritual thirst and spiritual health. And if we're to be spiritually healthy, then it follows that we need to obey our spiritual thirst. In Psalm 63, we read, My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. So it's easy to pay attention to the physical indicators of our thirst. Our mouths go dry, we get a headache, we know when we need to drink. 
But what if our souls are thirsty? Do we pay attention to indicators that we are spiritually dry and dehydrated? You see, there is a you that is more than a body. Whatever we call it, my soul, my heart, my innermost being, there is a deep down part of us that is wired to experience thirst. And we can't ignore the value that the Bible puts on that part of us, the soul. And so we read that David's soul was thirsty and parched. Job's soul felt bitterness. And Jesus offered his disciples rest for their souls. In our Exodus story today, we're going to follow some very thirsty Israelites on their journey. And as I read the passage, I want us to remember this. Ours is the Exodus story. God chooses us, his people, a community of believers. He calls us out of the Egypt of our past. He rescues us from slavery to sin. He leads us to freedom through the Red Sea of our baptism. And just like them, our story doesn't end there. After their amazing salvation and deliverance, they didn't step right into a life of peace and prosperity. And neither do we. Nor did they enter a comfortable or static kind of life, just waiting for the day when their promised land, heaven to us, would come to them. No, they embarked upon a journey. It was a journey of a lifetime, literally. Their journey took place externally, but it also took place internally. And it represents the journey every Christian is called to make towards spiritual health and wholeness this side of heaven. It's the process by which Christ is formed in us. The possibility that we can be transformed to such an extent that we are recognizably like Jesus is central to the gospel message. Theologian and author, Dr. M. Robert Mulholland, and you don't want to say that when your mouth's dry, says this, the way to spiritual health and wholeness lies in an increasingly faithful response to the one whose purpose shapes our path, whose grace redeems our detours, whose power liberates us from crippling bondages of the prior journey, and whose transforming presence meets us at every turn on the road. So let's turn to our passage and see what God does with those thirsty Israelites. We're looking at Exodus 15 verses 22 to 27. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That's why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? 
So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statue and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. It's a mysterious passage. Bitter water made sweet by a stick. Jonathan and I have thrown many a stick into water in our time. Our black Labrador poppy loved to chase after them, but never did we see the strange and miraculous transformation we read about here. What I want you to notice about this passage is that God takes the Israelites into three different locations. The first is the wilderness of Shur. The second is beside the waters of Mara. And the third is the oasis at Elim. Now in the wilderness of Shur, like David, They were dry and parched. At the waters of Mara, like Job, they faced bitterness. And at the oasis of Elim, I imagine they experienced the same kind of rest for their souls that Jesus later offered his disciples. So let's take a look. Our first stop is the wilderness. Why are we surprised (laughs) when God takes us into the desert. The Israelites didn't accidentally end up there. God led them in. There's a very clear scriptural model relating to wilderness or desert experiences and their role in our Christian walk. Moses, before his call to rescue the Israelites, spent 40 years in the wilderness in Midian. Abraham left a bustling seaside town to follow God into a nomadic life in the desert. Hagar met God in the wilderness. David did a lot of desert time hiding from Saul. And of course, Jesus himself spent 40 days in the wilderness. In the wilderness, the terrain is unfriendly. The ground is hard. And often the heat is unbearable. Wildernesses are uncomfortable and challenging places. They're sparse. Not much grows there. They're barren and boring and often uninteresting places. But the same God who created the garden also created the wilderness. And we will all experience times of struggle and difficulty in our lives. But our times in the wilderness can be our times of greatest spiritual growth. Author Marlena Graves writes like this, God uses the desert of the soul. He uses it to form us, to make us beautiful souls. The hard truth then is 
everyone who follows Jesus is eventually called into the wilderness. The wilderness has a way of curing our illusions about ourselves and teaching us to depend more and more on God. And we discover, I love this, we discover that the desert drips with the divine. That desert land is fertile ground for spiritual activity, transformation, and renewal. Lots of circumstances can be deserts. A prolonged sickness can be a desert. Being stuck in a miserable, boring job instead of the fulfilling career you had hoped for can be a desert. Depression or mental ill health can be a desert. Disappointment, bereavement, loss can be a desert. When we're in the desert, it can feel like God isn't doing anything. It can feel like we've been set aside or forgotten. But God is always at work. And our obeying our thirst in the wilderness means trusting that God is there with us, as he was with the Israelites, and that he will provide what we need, as he did with the Israelites. If life has taken you into a desert right now, likelihood is your soul is dry and parched, you will be thirsty. And maybe, like the Israelites, a little grumpy. Perhaps these words, spoken by God himself, are for you to drink from. Therefore, I'm going to persuade her, lead her into the wilderness, and there speak tenderly to her heart. There I will make the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. Now, I didn't know Steve was going to read this this morning. He didn't know this was going to be part of what I was going to say this morning. And so my suspicion is the spirit has been at work. And there is somebody here who really needs to hear this verse. So here it is again. In a desert place, I found him. In a barren land and howling waste, I shielded him and cared for him. I guarded him as the apple of my eye. Beautiful verses. So then we come to our next stop, the waters of Mara. The Israelites have been traveling in the desert for three days without water. They must have been experiencing those thirst indicators big time. They were thirsty. At last, they see glistening in the distance. Imagine their joy and relief. They rush to it, and to their delight, it is water. So they drink urgently, only to find that the water is bitter and undrinkable. What a cruel disappointment. Hopes raised, only to be dashed. They start to complain. They murmur against God and against Moses. How many times have you been there? I know I have dozens of times murmuring against God. They're angry and frustrated. Who can blame them? But anger and frustration can be an indication of something deeper in our hearts. When a glass of water gets knocked, what spills out of it is water. 
When you get knocked by the disappointments of life, what spills out of you? What spilled out of the Israelites was bitterness. The waters of Marah were polluted just like their hearts. And the bitterness in their hearts was exposed as they looked into the mirror of the waters. Yes, they had been miraculously delivered out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. Yes, they had been taken safely through the Red Sea. Yes, they had their final, their promise of a final destination, a land flowing with milk and honey. But their hearts, like our hearts, had some catching up to do. When they were tried and tested on the journey, it became clear that the old stuff was still in them. What became evident in the face of Mara is that the Israelites needed deliverance from more than just Pharaoh. They needed deliverance from their grumbling, mumbling, bitter selves. The external object, the external obstacle, revealed the internal realities of their hearts. And sometimes our external obstacles reveal the internal realities of our hearts. Dare I say it, we're more like the Israelites than we like to admit. You could say they had every reason to be aggrieved. Let's not forget, they'd endured 400 years of pain and misery under Egyptian rule. They had suffered generational trauma. And within living memory, many of them had witnessed the massacre of their firstborn baby boys. They were living in the memory of that pain, held captive to that heartache, and it led to bitterness of soul. God knew this, and he cared. You see, bitterness grows best undercover. Very often, we pretend it's not there. Sometimes, we're even unaware that it's there. Hebrews 12.15 describes bitterness as a root, which can lead to all sorts of other negative responses and behaviors. When we first moved into our current house four years ago, there was a very lovely periwinkle growing in the garden. The trouble was it was rapidly spreading everywhere and it was suffocating all the other plants. So we decided that we were going to dig it up and we were pretty ruthless, but the trouble was it had this network of fine roots that just threaded under the soil. They extended everywhere under cover. So still, even four years later, we find shoots that remind us that periwinkle is still very much alive and well beneath the surface. When the Israelites came to the water, there was nothing visible for them to think there was something wrong with that water. If there had been, they wouldn't have just rushed in and drunk from it, but they did. And they found it to be bitter and undrinkable. And so they remained thirsty. Like the Israelites, we might not know there is bitterness beneath the surface. 
until we find that when we try to drink, there's a bitter taste. Bitterness leaves us thirsty. And if we're to obey our thirst in bitter seasons, then we need to learn the lessons of Mara. Charles Spurgeon, a highly influential Victorian preacher, says this. He sends us our Maras just to blow away our shams and get rid of our pretenses. It's always a gain to a man or a woman to know the truth about himself. The bitter waters of Mara revealed the bitterness that lodged in the hearts of the Israelites. And God doesn't want to leave them that way. He wants to heal their hearts and show them his goodness and faithfulness. He wants to move the Israelites from simply knowing and believing what was secondhand knowledge for them, stories of encounters from the generations before, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. God wanted to move them from knowing and believing those things to experiencing their own encounters with God. And he wants to do the same with us. He wants us to encounter him personally. Further on in the Old Testament, there's a story of a woman who became defined by her bitterness. Naomi and her husband and two sons had left their home to live elsewhere. During the 10 years that Naomi lived in this new country, her husband and her two sons died. She decided to return to her homeland. And when she got there, the women of the village came out to greet their long lost friend. But she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Naomi's grief and continued loss had created a bitterness of soul that now defined her. But God hadn't finished with Naomi, and he hadn't finished with the Israelites, and he hasn't finished with us. For both Naomi and the Israelites, the issue was they had a faulty view of God. And because of their faulty view of God, they were unable to trust him. They didn't know and understand his heart, that he loved them. His desire was to heal their wounded hearts and provide water for them, not just provide water for them. It's the lesson of the meanwhile. God is the God of our meanwhiles. And God knew what was ahead. He sees the end from the beginning. We don't. And he is with us in those in-betweens. In our meanwhiles, we need to know and see God's heart. Yes, things come our way that are really hard. But we need to understand that God loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He wants to heal us, to restore us, and for us to step into the fullness of what Jesus did for us. So in the meanwhile, Moses goes straight to God with the problem. I'm pretty certain that if I'd been Moses, I'd have gone straight for my trusty stuff. You know, 
the one that turned into a snake, the one that he held up to the waters of the Red Sea to part them. It worked for him before. Why not again? I'd have pointed that thing at those bitter waters and prayed my best prayer. But instead, God does something different. He teaches Moses how to deal with bitterness. He instructs him to add a tree. Seriously? How is a tree going to fix bitter waters? The result was another miracle. The bitter water became fit to drink. It became sweet. The tree, of course, is representative of the cross. Many references in the New Testament refer to the cross as a tree. It points to what Jesus did on the cross. It points to the power of the cross to heal and transform our wounded, broken hearts from bitterness to sweetness. Only Jesus can do that. We can't. Waving the staff of my will and my own efforts at the bitterness in my heart won't make it sweet. But if I allow God to show me the truth of what's in there, If I bring it before him in humble need, he will heal and transform me. Our third stop is the oasis of Elim. I wonder what you imagine when you think of an oasis. I think of the Maldives. Water, sand, lush green trees and bushes, grassy banks, and chill, relax. Breathe. The oasis has got to be a place of refreshment, restoration, and rest for the Israelites. But to really appreciate it, we need to just rewind back to Mara for a moment. Just before bringing the Israelites to the oasis of Elim, God does something else. Having revealed their hearts to them, He reveals his heart to them. He says, I am the Lord who heals you. The incident at Mara wasn't about the healing of the waters. It was about the healing of hearts. And so God reveals himself as healer, Jehovah Rapha. God is basically saying, Healing is who I am. It's my very nature. The Hebrew word rapha means healing, but it can also mean restorer or repairer. God is the one who fixes broken things. Now, I don't want to downplay physical healing. I believe that God heals physically. But I also believe he heals spiritually emotionally and mentally. God used the bitter waters of Mara to demonstrate his power to heal, to turn bitterness to sweetness, and then he moved the Israelites on to the place of refreshment. The oasis of Elim represents everything that Mara wasn't. And apparently, it's only a matter of an afternoon's walk away. Little did the Israelites know what awaited them just 
down the road. God, the God of the meanwhile, he knew. Yet he didn't tell Moses, oh, just walk them down the road. There's plenty of water there. Mm-mm. No, they needed that revelation of God as healer before God took them to Elam. In our passage, only one short verse is assigned to the oasis of Elam, yet records indicate that the Israelites spent some time there. At Elam, there were 70 date palms, plenty of shade, plenty of sustenance, and there was an endless supply of fresh water. We are told there were 12 springs. That's one each for the 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm. And so they camped there near the water. This period of rest was clearly important. I'm reminded immediately of the famous 23rd Psalm. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. This was a period of soul restoration for the Israelites. Just like our physical bodies need rest, our souls need rest. Rest is another thing God puts high value on. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. Our souls get fatigued. If we're to obey our thirst, we need scheduled rest stops. Scheduled oases that minister to our soul needs. Times to stop and reflect, to properly consider the condition of our hearts. To hand over what we find there and to receive those cleansing, fresh, living waters again. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance. In fact, before it starts, it says, above all else, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That word vigilance means to give careful attention, keep careful watch, be on the alert to what is going on with your heart So how is your heart today? How is your soul doing? I'd like to invite you all to stand. And if the band could come back, please. We're going to just take a moment now to do just that. We're going to just take a moment to check in with our hearts. We're going to take a pause moment just to become aware of those internal thirst indicators. Perhaps like David, you're finding yourself currently in a wilderness season and your soul is dry and parched. Or perhaps like Job, your soul is feeling bitterness, disappointment, hurt, or perhaps what you need right now is simply rest, 
refreshment, restoration for your soul. You know, back in biblical times, they distinguished between dead and living water. Springs like the ones at Elim had a special significance. They were called living waters because they were pure. They were fresh, life-giving streams that poured out a constant and safe water supply. Living water. Jesus himself spoke of living water. Dead water was water that had been collected and stored in cisterns or wells. Water which lay still and could stagnate and sometimes harbor disease. Perhaps what you're feeling right now is that your supply of water has dried up or that it has become stale and stagnant in some way. You know, Jesus is the only one who can quench our thirst. So what I want to offer you this morning is his invitation. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. He who believes in me, as the Bible says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them like a stream of living water welling up to eternal 